0: Welcome to the Recovery Edge podcast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Today I invited Bob from my work group. I call it my work group because I go there during my lunch hour and uh, I attend, used to attend uh, like at least four times a week before the coronavirus hit and uh, I've been working remotely. But I still meet Bob about once a week. Um, He's in my uh, book club, and sometimes us gentlemen, a few of us, meet together face-to-face for a meeting. Uh, I invited Bob to do this podcast, and he agreed. I'm very thankful for it. Um, We're going to do this in two parts. Um, Bob has a very interesting story, and the second half of this uh, episode will come out later, but I will ask him to dive more into his, uh, his outlook on life as he goes through his uh, health challenges and um, the way that his spirituality and his view on higher power have been um, carrying him through that and how he's at peace with uh, things in general. But first I wanted to just get the uh, story, Bob's story, of uh, what it was like and what happened and a little bit of what it's like now. Um, So thanks for listening to episode number two here and joining us. And uh, with that, we'll we'll go ahead and get started. Thanks for being here today, Bob. Um, How about you uh, give us your sobriety date and your home group and any other fine details you'd like to share.
1: Okay, my name is Bob and I am an alcoholic. And I, the last drink was on May 5th, 1988,
0: which means I got
1: 32 years of
0: sobriety. 32 years, that's awesome. What's it like to walk in Bob's shoes for a day today?
1: It really isn't very exciting today, these days. I have some health issues, so I'm not getting around real well. I try to make. The meeting to my home group, Happy Trudgers down in 18th and Broadway, every day when it's meeting. How long have you been attending Trudgers now? Since May 5th, 1988. So has it changed much? Yeah, it has changed. A lot of people have moved away. Some of the original guys. Uh, Other guys have just gone to different meetings. I've kept the same meeting just because I like the people.
0: So while we record this, uh, we're going through the coronavirus pandemic. Um, How has it impacted your meetings? How has it impacted you? Well, the way it's impacted me is the way it's impacted
1: uh, the home group. We used to meet from noon to one, face to face, Monday through Friday. And since all the restrictions have been put in place, we can't meet face-to-face anymore. So we've had a Zoom meeting for two or three months, and I did not find that to be satisfactory for me. Um, So just recently we started up another, the same, face-to-face meeting, but apparently we have... Instead of one meeting going on, we have a Zoom meeting, which is Zoom only. We've got a face-to-face meeting that meets at Union Station two days a week. And we've got a face-to-face meeting that meets in the church for five days a week. And I think it would be good to try to collect all that and glue it back together. Have you
0: ever experienced anything like this? No. This is unprecedented. So we're all kind of learning this together.
1: We are. And and I I think a lot of the changes that have been made will probably remain, some of them will remain in effect going forward, even when this thing is over.
0: I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. Why don't you, let's take a step back. Let's talk about your childhood um, just briefly. And then you can talk about some of the events leading up to that first drink. Um, So take it away.
1: Okay. I grew up in Syracuse, New York
2: uh, in a small family, one brother, one sister. We weren't rich, but we weren't impoverished
1: either. Um, my dad ran a, a coffee shop, ended up buying a coffee shop and, and uh, had uh, had this maybe 30-40 seat restaurant in an office building in downtown Syracuse, such as it was. Syracuse is not a very big city. Um, And it was open for only breakfast and lunch. I used to work in there, but he wouldn't let me walk, walk, talk to any customers. I stayed in the kitchen, and I washed dishes. And what I learned from that experience is, I don't want to be a dishwasher in a restaurant. So uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I was a normal, regular kid. I, uh, I got decent grades, not the world's best, but not too bad. I played sports. I played soccer in, college, in uh, high school, and I ran track. At one time, I think I set some regional records, but all the, all the state records were taken by you know, kids from New York City. What did you run? I ran the 180-yard low hurdles and I ran the 220,
2: and I ran the 100-yard dash. Oh, you were a speedster. I was a speedster. Probably had my first drink when I took a sip out of my father's
1: beer. Probably sometime when I was 13, 14. Was it a special occasion? Mm, the, the only special occasion it was, was we had an uncle
2: who lived in Pennsylvania. And he and his wife had come up for the weekend. And that usually involved a lot of beer drinking by my
1: father and my uncle. My father, I believe, was a functional alcoholic.
2: So I certainly I certainly had the gene. He he held a job fairly successful. Um was pleasant, wasn't violent. But every night he'd have
1: a drink when he got home. Then he'd have a drink with dinner. Then he'd have a drink after dinner. And fundamentally,
2: he just wasn't there, emotionally. Of course, those were in the days when men weren't supposed to have emotions. Right. And so it was really hard for my dad to
1: to figure all that stuff out. And I don't think he ever really did.
2: My brother, who lives a few blocks away, reminded me that he had never heard my dad say that he loves him. And when I thought about that, I hadn't either. Just wasn't
1: something guys did in the 50s. You know, it was a dysfunctional family but no more dysfunctional than a whole lot of American families. You know, lots of codependency, lots of uh, enabling, which I recognized much later. didn't recognize it at the time. So uh, off I go to college. And the first time I got drunk was uh, I was attending college at a little liberal arts school called Colgate University. And I had a roommate who was from New York City and a roommate from Iran. And we all used to go down to the Colgate Inn, which was an old time inn in this very small town where everybody came to have dinner and have a drink. We used to go there after classes and have dinner and have a drink.
2: And I can remember being pretty, pretty inebriated, Um, and walking back from the bar to the campus, you know, just being silly. And thinking, boy, this is fun. as my life continued, I don't think I drank alcoholically for a long, long time. By that time, I had graduated from college, gone to graduate school,
1: uh, had a career in the Air Force and was working for United Airlines in Chicago or San Francisco. And I can remember one incident where I had a big career disappointment, a setback. I felt like shit and I found that alcohol helped. And I think that's when I started drinking
2: alcoholically And that probably was around 1971, 72, something like that.
1: And I fell into the habit of having a drink every night, just like my father, Um, having more with dinner, having a drink after dinner, and then I
2: passed out in bed. I uh, I remember getting a little concerned about it from time to time. And as time went on, my family got concerned about it, started helping me, making
0: comments about my drinking. So you were having some self-realization. Um, what uh, behavior kind of led you to that moment? Once I
1: started drinking in the evening after work, I could never be sure what was going to happen and how much I was going to drink. And we had, you know, we had a lot of friends. By this time, I was living in Denver, still working for United Airlines. We had a lot of friends, and... Uh, They would stop by, and I would, of course, always welcome them, and we would sit there and have several scotches at night. And then I got talked to about too much scotch, so then I started drinking
2: wine.
0: The old switcheroo. Yep.
2: And I don't think there was any kind of job involvement at all. But there certainly were some mornings when I went in
1: to work. I was probably still a little bit drunk from the night before. And I said, I'm going to have to do something about that. I uh, went to talk to a treatment center. In probably the early 80s, but I didn't didn't like all the God stuff and all the uh, rules that had to be followed. Just you know, some rules that didn't make sense to me. And I had always done things the way I wanted to. If it didn't make sense to me, I didn't do it. If I thought the speed limit ought to be 80,
2: that's how fast I drove. Anyhow, um, as time went on, I could see that it was becoming more
1: and more serious.
2: I had, I don't know if you'd call them flash forwards, but
1: I had a, some kind of vague picture in my head,
2: Street Bridge. some premonition and so of course my family kept talking to me my friends talked to me and finally one day
1: and i can't tell you why i had this flash that i had better do something about it
0: and do it now like it started to really weigh you down
1: Everything, you know, I was, I was, I could see I was becoming less productive, less, less happy. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, we went to the Retreatment Center of Presbyterian St. Luke's, the old hospital that used to sit where the new one does now.
2: And there was one of their intake people, um... Who I haven't seen since, who told me how, you know, what
1: I had to do and where when I had to show up. And I said, Well, I can't, I can't show up right now. I was teaching at three different universities after work. And I was working full-time. And I had to get rid of some of those classes. And so I finished those
2: classes and then showed up at PSL. As though they' never heard of me before. And they put me in uh, detox. Mm. They made me
1: stay in a hospital for two or three nights. And then I uh, I got a leave of absence from my main job during the day and went to PSL during the
2: day and then was able to teach my university classes at night and it all worked out and i paid attention i started understanding a bit about
1: addiction and how it worked and how it got a hold of you and once it got a hold of you it was really hard to break i had smoked Everybody smoked in the 50s. And looked cool doing it. Yeah, I'm sure I did. Um, But one of my buddies, one of my squash buddies was a dentist. And he was looking in my mouth one day and he said, how are you going to like missing half a jaw? I
2: said, Marty, what are you talking about? He said, You got some precancerous signs in your mouth. You'd better quit smoking. I said, Okay. My eyes got that big. And
1: I quit cold turkey. Did you ever smoke?
0: Yep. Uh, I quit cold turkey. Uh, I only ran to the trash can once. <laughs> and that was it for me. I was, I was done. I was
1: done with that. Yeah, I, I had already run back to the trash and, you know, had multiple attempts to try to quit. Yeah. <clears throat> but then I knew I was just going to have to go through some hell. And once I got it out of my system, as long as I never touched nicotine again, I was going to be okay. And that's what I did.
0: No meetings? for cigarettes?
1: No meetings for cigarettes.
2: No 12, steps either, huh? no 12 step. Just quit. just quit. It probably took 6
1: months before I became comfortable. But I learned something from that. Because I had tried once before to
2: quit cold turkey, and I stayed off cigarettes for Close to a year, and I was at a party with my wife, she was still smoking. And I said, I think I've got this thing beat, let me have one of your cigarettes. Bicker, 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 back and forth, and I got a cigarette and I smoked it. Within three days, I was back up to two packs a day. And I probably smoked for another year or two after that.
1: So, another valuable lesson. Mm -hmm. Once you're off, it's painless to stay off. But once you ingest any of that crap, you're dead meat. And that was valuable when I quit drinking later. So, anyhow, I showed up at Presbyterian St. Luke's, went through their detox program and started attending the classes that they had. And I was in there with a bunch of people who were addicted to to, uh, prescription drugs, some uh, people who were on the streets, several lawyers, just a whole mix of people. All really nice people have no idea what's happened to them, but i uh, I finished uh, treatment and family week and all that kind of stuff. My family was very supportive, went back to work, and uh, my wife introduced me to one of her coworkers about that time just wouldn't and she made the comment to this guy, Bob just finished a treatment program. She didn't know anything about anonymity.
2: <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, I was like, what?
1: And this guy grabbed me by the shirt collar, pulled me into his office,
2: sat down, and he said, have you gone to any A meetings yet? I said, I've gone to a couple. He said, you're going to start going every day. I'm going to be your sponsor. And I would,
1: I would drive from Lakewood every day at lunchtime, come into town to go to Happy Treasures. And my sponsor's name was Bill Whaley. And uh, he would work me through the steps all the way through. And apparently did a good job at it because I've been sober ever since.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Recovery Edge cast episode two. I'd like to thank Bob for sitting down and sharing his story. Uh, I envision the second half will be out next week or shortly thereafter. You guys are going to love it. And I conclude with the quote. Sometimes life will take you to the edge, but love of life will bring you back again. Anthony T. Hinks Signing out